This is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. One night when I was out with Harry Nilsson, he said, I want to drop by some friend's house. We can grab dinner there. And the cab pulls up to the Dakota. And I went, no, it can't be. And there, opening the door is John and Yoko. Hello, come on in. You made some macrobiotic food. Wait a minute, who's this lad? He's, this is a bloke from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Look, Yoko, it's the deaf mute from Mary Hartman. And I'm like, I'm trying to keep my face from cracking and falling off because he's acting like, fan-like to me, John Lennon is. And I'm trying to just continue to breathe. Today's guest is Ed Bakley Jr., who is widely known for his work as an American actor and environmental activist. Begley's appeared in hundreds of films, television shows, and stage performances. Most notably, he played Dr. Victor Ehrlich on the television series St. Elsewhere. The role earned him numerous Primetime Emmy Award nominations and a Golden Globe Award nominations. He has also co-hosted, along with his wife Rochelle Carson, the Green Living Reality Show entitled Living with Ed. Begley's films include Stay Hungry, Blue Collar, An Officer and a Gentleman, This is Spinal Tap, The Accidental Tourist, She-Devil, The Page Master, Batman Forever, Pineapple Express, Whatever Works, What's Your Number, Ghostbusters, and Chips. He is a recurring cast member in the mockumentaries of Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy, including Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, For Your Consideration, and Mascots. In 2020, he was cast, along with his wife Rochelle, in the award-winning mockumentary Reboot Camp. Ed is especially proud of his environmental work. Since 1970, he has been an environmentalist, beginning with his first electric vehicle, recycling, and becoming a vegan. Ed practices what he preaches, living in a home that is 1,585 square feet, using solar power, wind power, and an electricity-generating bicycle used to toast bread. He is the author of Living Like Ed, A Guide to the Eco-Friendly Life, and Ed Begley Jr.'s Guide to Sustainable Living, Learning to Conserve Resources and Manage an Eco-Conscious Life. He also wrote A Vegan Survival Guide for the Holidays with Jerry James Stone. Welcome, Ed Begley Jr. I wonder if you could start by telling me your Beatles origin story. Ken, I'm so happy to be on with you. And I first became aware of the Beatles when I was a fairly young man. It was 1963, and I was going to school at Chaminade in um, Chatsworth, California. And somebody brought this album to the school, and we started playing it in this rec room. I was boarding there at this 
boarding school in California. And uh, it was a British group called the Beatles. And it was incredible. This Meet the Beatles album was just fantastic right away from first listen. And then, uh, you know, I, I just became like all of my friends, very much a fan instantly of the Beatles, every single song that they put out. And then as things changed to a different kind of sound, you know, with Rubber Soul and Revolver and the inventive things that they started to do. And, you know, George bringing the sitar into things with Norwegian Wood. And it just, it, it was inspirational. And I was a drummer. I wanted to be a drummer long before I had heard about the Beatles. I was a bit of a drummer in military school. I played the drums in marching band, not exactly, you know, a, you know, an exciting kind of situation, but I wanted to be in a band and I wanted to have a band and what have you. And I, uh, for a brief period there in the sixties, had a garage band with some friends and we did a lot of Beatles covers. I was obsessed with the Beatles and just obsessed with Ringo. And so I, he played Ludwig drums. So I started playing Ludwig drums. I wanted to do everything he did. I held my drumsticks the way he held them and you know, I became a huge Beatles fan, Beatles fan, and I am to this very day. Would you say you grew up in a in a musical family? My dad couldn't sing a note, neither could I. I have a terrible voice. It's something genetic, apparently. There are no great singers in my family. Other than my, I have a daughter uh, who's 21 now, and she somehow got her mother's voice and not mine or my her grandfather's, my father's voice. She got her own voice, a great voice from her mother, and she sings wonderfully. So, but my dad played drums a bit and he played a few other instruments, but he was not an accomplished musician. Uh, so uh, I, I, uh, I did, as a drummer in the bands I was in, I never had a microphone on a little stand in front of me. They didn't want, they didn't want it and I didn't want it. It was, I was no help whatsoever vocally. <laughs> so you weren't like Ringo, you weren't singing act naturally. No, no, not me. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I have the great, privilege every fall here uh, at Monmouth University of teaching the Beatles to freshmen, mostly. And uh, they usually know the Beatles already when they come in the room. Um, and it's often because, you know, wherever they happen to have been, they've heard them. And it's like nothing else that's ever, you know, ever occurred to them musically. Uh, would Is that something that you... Um, that you share from your own experience, I guess, when you were 15? Yeah, I'd like to think that I liked good music before I had heard about the Beatles. I certainly liked Gene McDaniels, an accomplished, accomplished musician. I liked uh, the Everly Brothers. I liked Four Seasons, uh, certainly had its charm for that kind of genre music. Uh, I liked, uh, you know, Sam Cooke. I, I liked those kinds of songs, that kind of music a lot. So I like some good music and I probably like some cornball music too, but the Beatles were something different and amazing. And as it turns out, we later, I later learned that they took our kind of music, all that muddy water stuff and what have you and all that, you know, wonderful soul and R&B kind of music. And they re-figured it, reworked it and sold it back to us, you know, where a lot of their, they were fans of Elvis, of course, and you know, I learned more about the Beatles as the years went by, and they were fans of the Beach Boys and other stuff I didn't I didn't know that they would be fans of. I liked the Beach Boys, too, but that seemed kind of like corny California music until, of course, you know, pet sounds and all of that. Yeah, it was like they were importer-exporters. 
Yeah, exactly. But they were they were doing something amazing. They were amazing people. All four of them were different and wonderful in different ways. They sang wonderfully. They wrote great songs that connected to people my age. So I discovered them when I was 13, and I'm still a fan to this day. I love putting their music on. And, you know, my daughter, who never, you know, she didn't grow up with their, their music when they were, you know, more active, but she, she loves their music. And, you know, my grown kids, they loved it from the earliest age because a lot, a lot of Beatles music was played in our house. And it's just extraordinary. It's great songwriting. It really is incredible songwriting. Lennon McCartney and George and Ringo, all of them are great songwriters. They, their stuff holds up to this day, and I, I just can't get enough of it. It is kind of a miracle, and you really touched earlier on probably the reason why you know folks like me in, in academe, as they say, are still studying them, and that is that arc where they start with... Yeah, the kind of mop-top stuff and all of that, and I want to hold your hand. And then that art goes straight upward. Sergeant Pepper and just amazing stuff improved and changed and each time for me, for my taste, wonderfully. It, they kept rediscovering things and, uh, and discovering things for the first time and doing sounds in the studio that were incredible. You know, the kind of stuff that they did on uh, Sergeant Pepper was just extraordinary. It was like nothing I'd ever heard. The groundbreaking and it holds up to this day. It's incredible engineering, incredible songwriting, incredible singing, you know, everything about it, musicianship, they were firing on all cylinders and uh, it's just something beautiful to behold still. Is there, is there anything, you know, that you ever draw on and I, this may be far-fetched, but um, with them, you know, with your acting career, I know uh, the first time I saw you, uh, uh, was probably I was probably late to the party, but you were in a, an episode that I loved of Columbo. Oh, I love that show, and I love Peter Falk. Yes, he and I were good friends. Yeah, well, it was the one with the puzzle pieces. Yes, and it was just uh, it was a different kind of structure for that show, but it showed that it was elastic enough to take it. You know, right. it, it didn't have the same structure, and, and the Beatles, of course, were very elastic in, in their ability to change and grow. Uh, but I just remember seeing you and, and thinking, who is that guy? He's arresting. You know, you you had your own quality in that way. Bless you. That's very nice of you. Was there ever any is do you ever see that kind of inspiration that you can draw on from the Beatles and your acting or are those two different kinds of worlds? I wouldn't presume to talk about myself creatively in the same sentence as the Beatles. I'm a fine working actor, I suppose. I, I do good work. To a certain extent, because I'm still working at age 71, soon to be 72. So I guess I'm doing something right. But uh, I can't. I just won't have it. I won't allow my creative, you know, abilities to be spoken of in the same sentence as those four. Because even after the Beatles, look what George did and what John continues to do and Ringo continues to do. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, just Paul is brilliant and. You know, I knew John a little bit. I was very lucky to know him. I'm sorry. I feel like he's still here. I get a little emotional sometimes thinking about it. But I was friends with Harry Nilsson. So one night when I was out with Harry Nilsson, he said, I want to drop by some friend's house. We can grab dinner there. And the cab pulls up to the Dakota. And I went, no, it can't be. We walk up, you know, we go through the lobby, walk to the elevator and go up to the whatever floor it is. And there opening the door is John and Yoko. Hello, come on in. 
You made some macrobiotic food. Wait a minute, who's this lad? He, this is a bloke from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Look, Yoko, it's a deaf mute from Mary Hartman. And I'm like, I'm trying to keep my face from cracking and falling off because he's acting like fan-like to me, John Lennon is, because they watched this show in the 70s called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman with Louise Lasker, this Norman Lear show, very unusual show, funny show. And so he's asking me, what's Louise Lasser like? And these are these questions. And I'm trying to just continue to breathe, having dinner with these remarkable people. So I've just been blessed. I'm still friends with Ringo to this day. I knew George for years and talked with him and, you know, worked with him on environmental matters. He cared deeply about the environment, George did. He's an incredible man. I still am very friendly with his wife and his widow. And so I'm just... Uh, you know, I'm just blessed to have known him. I don't know Paul well. I've met him a couple of times, but I don't know him. But I just love his work. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm just blessed to have heard their music and to have, have it been in my life low these many years. And to know them, I, I just I have to pinch myself sometimes. I feel so lucky. When we return, Ed will share more about that night at the Dakota, along with stories about his longstanding environmental activism. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back with Ed Begley Jr. on Everything Fab Four. I'm so glad you shared that story. That's really moving. One of the things that really struck me was just, you know, how engaged he was with the world and how much smaller it was in some ways. You know, you you mentioned Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I watched it too. And, and you know, he, he loved American television. He saw his One Day at a Time and Fantasy Island and Saturday Night Live. Then I was told by... That very evening, I was told by, by uh, John, he said, um, there was a bit that they did on Saturday Night Live where Lauren Michaels came out to the camera himself. The producer of Saturday Night Live came out and said, we've heard many rumors about the Beatles getting back together, that there might be a reunion. And many different reports were, have been put forward about the amount of money that's been offered. I just want to say... I'm Lauren Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night Live, and I'm willing to offer the four of you a check right here. He holds the check up. I'm, I'm willing to offer you $1,000. You split it up any way you wish, but uh, I would, if you would come by the studio here for Saturday Night Live. And uh, as it turns out, what, what he did not know, what Lauren Michaels did not know, and John shared it with me in the room, Paul was in town at that point, he was at John's place, I believe, at the Dakota. They were somewhere watching Saturday Night Live together, and they went, you know what? Let's do it. Let's get in a cab and go down there right now. Go to the security at 30 Rock and say we're there. And we know it won't be a 1,000, but hopefully you'll give us 500 because there's two of us here. And that's what I can't imagine he was making up. That's what he told me. And I believe Harry Nolson, who was my reason for being there, my good fortune to be there, was my friendship with Harry, he knew of that story, too. He said, yeah, I remember when that happened. That's incredible. That would have been great. So then I was charged with a task. I think it was Buck Henry who asked me because he had hosted it several times. He said, would you call them up 
and asked them, and how in God's name I got their number, I somehow got their number, either, uh, you know, they gave it to me or something, or Harry Nilsson gave it to me because we were meeting there or something. I don't know what, but I had their phone. I called them up and told them that um, I told Yoko, I spoke to Yoko and said, they're going to do it again. That Saturday Night Live thing, it's coming up this weekend when Buck Henry is hosting the show. So if they want to do it and they they chose not to do it, but it was funny. I got to be a messenger in that way for, you know, that kind of uh, wonderful comic moment that sadly never happened. But they had a great sense of humor about it, obviously. They were not at all offended about it. You know, the payoff, the punchline being a check for the, because you couldn't see the check at first on camera, $1,000, you know, there's a cashier's check. You can cash it instantly. And uh, so I, I just felt very lucky to be connected in the most modest of ways to any of them and continue to be connected in my small way to <laughs> them and their families. You know, uh, that's that's a lovely story. And it um, it's a good thing you didn't speak widely about it, because in those days, of course, there was such a clamor for for that reunion, the pressure would have been unbelievable. And also apropos of his open good nature, John's, he was, he talked about that night at dinner with Harry Nilsson at uh, the apartment of the Dakota. He said, you know, it's not like it was before Harry, you know, we don't come into, you know, the Kennedy airport and there's crowds waiting for us. We can, I can move about as I please. I go to central park and, you know, we take the pram and, you know, push the child around in the pram and, you know, it's no, everything's fine. Nobody bothers me and what have you. And the irony of him feeling that way now is extraordinary. He was so open and what have you and welcoming his whole life. And God bless him. I, I think of him often and fondly. And, the, you know, that, that ending, that ironically sad ending, it just, that pain never goes away, does it? Not for us. I know that Yoko's made her peace with it. And yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the, the saddest parts of, the thousands of kids who are discovering the Beatles right now, just like us at our, in our own moments, they're making this great discovery. And of course, I don't know about you, but I'm jealous as hell of them that they're going to have their whole lives before them to listen to all of this wonderful music and make those discoveries. But one of the sad aspects of it is they inevitably will go to Wikipedia or hopefully a fine Beatles book. And uh, they'll make the sad discovery of, of what happens to him and, and how young he is. So young. We were all so young. I was, I think, 30 at the time. So he was somewhere around 40. I think he was about a, less than that. I might have been, what was he, 38 or something? I think he was. He was 40. He was 40. Okay. He was a, dec- a full decade old. To lose him that early, just so tragic. But again, I've, I focus not on that. I focus on his incredible contribution to our lives. You know, another tragedy, the horrible assassination of JFK, Part of the reason I and many of my friends were able to recover from that was the gift that the Beatles gave us. We started to feel good again after that horrible thing with uh, the loss of our president. It was one of the joys that began to creep in their life was their music. So, I, you know, they've, they've been a very good friend to America in many ways. Oh, they sure have. And, and that's a beautiful observation because they themselves, you know, were were in just dead set on being the tonic that Britain needed too. They were tired of hearing about the war and, you know, right. seeing all, you know, that it was 1953, I believe they were still rationing in Liverpool. 
Right. You know, they were ready to see it all go away finally. Right. And turn the page and and do something happy. And what do we get? She loves you and I want to hold your hand. Yeah. Great, great Um, stuff. I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, one of my favorite guitars I've ever played. I didn't play the guitar, but the Rosewood Telecaster. Uh, and, uh, and your role in, in, in that story, if you want to share that. Yes, I, I will only say this. I was given the great honor of going to bid on that guitar for a, uh, someone very close to George who, uh, wanted to have the guitar in his family's possession. And so I, uh, I went and did that. I bid on it in I never took possession of the guitar myself. I just kind of was an intermediary, so a fairly anonymous person. I don't think that the auctioneer recognized me at all. I, I wasn't in disguise. I just put on like a baseball hat or something and sat there and, and bid. I was given instructions of what to do, and I followed them. And so the, the guitar, fortunately, is now where it belongs in his family's possession. And I just felt honored to, to be part of that. And uh, I love the family and... I get to see some of them on occasion, and uh, I just love Ringo, not the past year or two because of COVID, but he has had his birthday at Capitol Records in L.A., you know, on July 7th. And so uh, I've been very lucky to be invited to that every year, and I'm just blessed to have known them and continue to know them. Uh, I love that story. It's such an important guitar in the Beatles story. It is. And it it it's where it belongs. And, yes. and I, I love that you, you know, took your ultra fandom and made sure that, uh, that it, it made its way back to its rightful home. Yes. Thank you for that. But I was very pleased to do that. Stuff. Um, you know, uh, part, one of our themes this year on our, our show is the idea of hope. Um, and I, I'm experiencing it firsthand. We just started our first day at school back here at Monmouth today, uh, and while folks are wearing masks, they're sure happy to be back together. And, uh, and of course, there's still some uncertainty. Um, but I, I saw a lot of hope, uh, and you just described wonderful hope in, in what the Beatles provided for us after the terrible events in Dallas in 1963. Um, uh, I, I see a lot of hope in your environmentalism. And I wonder if you could, was there an aha moment in the life of Ed Begley Jr. where where you realized you wanted to be a part of, of, of this movement, of course, that now uh, is it in a dire place. Yes, it started for me in 1970. It started before that, if you will, because I was raised in a household by Ed Begley Sr., my father, a man who'd lived through the Great Depression. He was a son of Irish immigrants himself. He was a conservative, but he liked to conserve, and we turned off the lights and turned off the water and saved string and saved tinfoil. So I had that great influence from my father to conserve and what have you. And so he died within a few days of the first Earth Day, sadly. So I did a lot. I wanted to do something to honor him. So I took part in Earth Day to honor him. I'd been in Boy Scouts also. I'd lived, you know, out on Long Island. I got to see nature up close and personal with scouting. So the positive influence was my dad and scouting. But then the negative influence was as powerful. It was growing up also in L.A., Spent a great many years in L.A. too, and that horrible choking smog every day. So after 20 years of that, it's 1970 now. I lived two decades in it, and I went, what is this Earth Day? How can I help? What are you going to do? They went, we're going to clean up there. We're going to clean up the water. 
I went, sign me up, because I knew the air was dirty. I breathed it every day. I knew the water was dirty. I could go to the Santa Monica Bay and see it. I could go if I was inclined to Cleveland the year before the first Earth Day in 1969 and see that the Cuyahoga River had caught fire. For me, that was as much a reason for Earth Day as anything else, that negative experience of a river catching fire repeatedly. The other positive thing that happened before that in 69 was that we had been to the moon. And I think it was Buzz, Buzz Aldrin, my friend Buzz, who took some pictures with a Hasselblad camera, beautiful, crisp pictures. They didn't have digital cameras back then, but it was a beautiful image with a large negative. He took pictures of the Earth. And you can see it as this beautiful blue marble, this blue orb in the distance from the, the, the moon there where they had landed. And it was just extraordinary. It made us see the Earth as one. It was on the all the Earth Day flags, what have you, was a replication of that picture. You know, and it, that's, that positive thing of seeing the Earth in that way made us think about things differently. So I became involved in 1970. I want to say this. We have plenty of challenges. We have lots of work to do. I know that. I don't live in a dream world. I know we have much to do. There's a lot of bad news about the environment. But don't forget the good news. From 1970 to date in L.A., for instance, we have four times the cars, millions more people. But we have a fraction of the smog. It's much less. It's not the same. It's not worse. It's better. We still have to help the people living near the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. They're near all this diesel pollution. People live near freeway interchanges and fulfillment centers, shipping centers. we got to get relief for those people with air pollution still. we got more work to do. But look what we have done. Look what we did with the Cuyahoga River. It doesn't catch fire anymore. The Hudson River was so polluted you couldn't eat the fish. People came back from serving in Vietnam. They couldn't return to their line of work. They were unemployed. Why? The Hudson River is so polluted you couldn't eat the fish. So they set about cleaning up the Hudson River, the Cuyahoga, the Santa Monica Bay. We've come incredibly far in all those things. We've got a lot of work with climate change to do. We have a lot, a lot of, a lot of work with the plastics in the ocean and the loss of coral reefs. I won't give you the long list. We know the bad news. But let's recognize what we have done and build on that and show that we can do it. You know, I like that because, of course, that is definitely hope uh, in its truest sense. And we do have some wins. I I often tell my students, you know, they they one of the wonderful things about them is this latest generation. They will get this done. You know, they're they don't kid around. Greta ain't playing around. She she's amazing. And so uh, I've decided to do more to kind of up my ante, you know, after I saw Greta take center stage here on the world stage. And so I. There's a few things. I live in a lead platinum home. It's as green as you can get, or so I thought. I found a few things I could do here, and I have long before COVID hit us, I just stopped flying. I just, if I can't get there in my electric car, I don't I don't go there now. I drive. I had a work in Albuquerque recently from L.A. It's about 800 miles. I just drive there. I have to go up to Portland. I'll drive there. I just won't get in a plane. So I'm trying to do my part for Greta and my grandkids and my grown kids and everybody's kids. And, and for you and I, whatever years I have left, you have many left. So do my kids and grandkids, I'm sure. Um, I want to have something fairly close to what I grew up with, uh, some semblance of nature left. And we must do that. Yeah. Well, the thing I remind them about, and, uh, and they almost can't fathom this, is uh, it's how different, and this is a win, right, is how different our highways look. I remember as a kid, just the amount of garbage that, you know, you would see routinely uh, around the country. You know, we did succeed in licking that. 
Yeah, we've made a great, great deal of progress with people just throwing stuff out on the highways. But sadly, now there's so many more people and so much stuff is plastic and plastic bags and everything. Even if people put it in the trash can, you know, it's kind of blown away by the wind and blows into a stream or out to the ocean. And, you know, we've made progress and I'm glad for it, but we've got work to do in many areas. And we all know that we just got to set about doing it. I, I had a great, uh, the great privilege of spending time on your website, and uh, I like how you talk about um, you make you make a case not just for environmentalism but for strategic environmentalism. Could you say a few words about that? It's about living differently, right? Yeah, it's about finding the pressure points where you can affect great change, you know, in ways that are leveraged, if you will. The way that I did it back in 1970, a lot of people come up to me today and say, Ed, I can't afford a big nine kilowatts of solar on my roof or a lead platinum home or a fancy electric car. I can't afford those things. To them, I say, neither could I when I started. I could afford to ride my bike, which I did in 1970, take public transportation, which I did, became a vegetarian, used all biodegradable soaps and detergents. I mean, like vinegar and water to clean up glass and baking soda to clean up scour in the sink and what have you home gardening, home composting, all that stuff that I did. It was all good for the environment and very, very cheap. I haven't bought a 1970 electric car. When I say that, I'm being quite grand. We're talking about a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn, but it got me around the San Fernando Valley, you know, and I learned quickly, everything that I did was not only good for the green of environmentalism, but the green for that stuff folded in my pocket called money. I was saving money to every turn, riding the bike, taking public transportation, recycling, diet, it was cheaper to eat lower in the food chain than it was to buy meat. All of it worked out in my favor. So pretty soon I had saved enough money to buy this electric car for $950. That was a good price for a used vehicle back then. And it was I found right away it was much cheaper to plug it into the wall than it was to buy 1970 gasoline. The same way it is today. It's cheaper to plug any electric car into the wall and go X amount of miles than if you had bought that same amount of mileage in the gasoline car. Just cheaper. And it's much cheaper in maintenance, there's no tune-up, oil change, fan belt, radiator flush, smog check, valve job. None of that stuff you used to do with an internal combustion car. You don't have that in your life anymore. So, you know, there's a lot of progress been made, and we have to be strategic about it. Nobody runs up to the top of Mount Everest. You get to base camp and you get acclimated. You climb only as high as you can. Some people are never going to be able to afford solar panels. But now they'll lease them to just about anybody. You don't have to buy them. You can lease them and save money every month with the lease. So there's that, but you don't you you don't run to the top of Mount Everest, as I said. You do what you can. You pick the low-hanging fruit first. Pretty soon, if you do the cheap and easy stuff, energy-saving thermostat, let's say, energy-efficient light bulbs, weather stripping around your doors and window, ride a bike of weather and fitness permit, take public transportation if it's available near you. All those things I just mentioned, dirt cheap, do them, save money, then move up the ladder and buy yourself a little solar oven one day. Buy a rain barrel to collect some rainwater. Keep moving. Do you know? Do what you can. It's an interesting list about things that we can't do. Well, I can't afford this and I can't do that. Note it. But what is the list of things you can do? And I, I can promise you, they are many. That's beautiful, and uh, I sure hope the both of us live long enough to uh, see all of the industries that are going to emerge around uh, environmentalism because they're certainly coming. You know, they're already here in many ways, but there are going to be things we can't even imagine right now. Yeah, solar is now, and wind are both cheaper than coal by long shots, even cheaper than natural gas now. So we're headed in the right direction, I think. 
Presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab 4 theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.